All right. So I'd like to welcome everyone to our SMA CENTCOM speaker session today titled, sorry, sorry, I'd like to thank everyone for dialing into this SMA CENTCOM speaker session titled Blame, Sway, and Vigilante Tactics, How Other Cultures Think Differently and Implications for Planning, and especially thank our speakers, Brigadier Tim Lai, SFC Matthew Martin, Dr. Abdul Akeem Sadiq, and Dr. Gwen Sutherland for taking the time to present today. And hopefully everyone that dialed in received our speaker's white paper. And if you haven't received that, you can feel free to email me, and I will send that over to you. When joining and leaving the conference... So I'm going to now briefly introduce our speakers before turning the floor over to them. Brigadier Tim Lai is a former British Army officer, and during his 32 years of military service, he's been involved as a strategist, planner, or operator in most of the last three decades' major military campaigns. Dr. Matthew Martin, sorry, SFC Matthew Martin is a psychological operations sergeant in the 5th PSYOP Battalion and in his experience within the PSYOP Regiment, he has held positions of tactical PSYOP team leader, plans and exercises, NCIOC, um, and is now a detachment surgeon. And Dr. Sadiq is a associate professor in the School of Public Administration at the University of Central Florida and he has conducted a study in Haiti focusing on, the understand, focus on, focusing on understanding mass fatality management-related issues following the 2010 devastating earthquake, and has also studied ways to enhance the community re resilience to floods in 2016. Finally, Dr. Sutherland is the Director of Human Geography and Analytics Research at Geographic Services, and there she provides analytic experience in sociocultural dynamics, geospatial technology, cognitive linguistics, and emerging conflicts. So um, I will turn the floor over to our speakers now. Hey, Colin, this is Tim Lai here. I, I don't know exactly how you want to play this, whether, whether you just want us to sort of come up and say, uh, make a few comments, or, or whether you want to uh, facilitate this. Uh, I'm very happy to go first, if, if that's what you'd like. Can you hear me? Gwyneth, you're coming in a little bit soft. Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you well, JC. I can hear you, Akeem. Um, can you hear us now? We're in the Pentagon. Can you guys hear us? Yes. Uh, yeah, Gwyneth, you'll just need to speak up a little bit. I, c I could hear Doc and JC pretty well. Okay. There you go. That's perfect. All right. We've changed the volume. Okay. Let me start over. Thank you to the SMA for uh, letting us have this panel discussion. And so I'm going to go through and uh, moderate the panel. Uh, and give a little introduction to the paper that preceded this, but we're going to diverge from the paper uh, and give each one of the panelists a little chance to uh, answer some questions, and we very much look forward to the questions of those of you who have dialed in. This uh, panel discussion and paper really follow along from a lot of other papers that have preceded that look at um, the cognitive space and uh, behavior uh, and the human factors domain. So we, when we brought together these different um, participants to contribute to this paper, I think 
down to every single author, they all asked me what was the purpose of this paper. And there was a lot of discussion about what we were trying to accomplish with the paper and how we were all supposed to contribute because there was such a diverse range of expertise. If, uh, for those of you who have not read the paper, there are uh, several members of the military who have a planning or operational background. There are several uh, what I would call uh, academics who are very um, who are very practically focused and who work constantly in the field. Uh, for instance, there's one member, uh, one contributor who was unable to join us at the last minute because they're traveling from Goma to Kinshasa. Um, then we have several practicing cognitive scientists who look almost exclusively at cross-cultural variations in cognitive science. And in my mind, each one of these groups of experts is looking at a different and crucial piece of a puzzle that planners really need to bring together when we're looking at some very complex issues right now. And they are captured in the title of the paper. So I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to turn it over to our panelists to, to weigh in on some questions. So when I was discussing the paper and the panel um, in, in different contexts uh, here, I, I heard some confusion uh, at the very outset with the title about how other cultures think differently. I think people walked right past the idea that cultures think differently and believed that we were really just talking about different values, that perhaps one culture believes something different than another, has a different political view, um, things of that nature, when really what we're talking about is cognition think differently. And so to give you an example, um, if I am sitting here and I, uh, with fairly good eyesight, in my field of vision, looking straight ahead, I have reasonable peripheral vision. And if someone else is sitting next to me, they're another human being with reasonably good eyesight, they are going to have the same, more or less, uh, vision and peripheral vision. That's a human physical quality of uh, sight and vision that is physical. And now when we take this and we start thinking about it and we put it in our minds and we start taking that uh, sight and it now becomes perception, that's when it starts to go into thinking. How do we think about what we see? How do we process it? So that type of thinking can vary certainly from individual to individual, but it can vary significantly between cultures. Your sense of space how you categorize what you're seeing, how you slot things into different um, schema or framework, how you understand yourself in that physical space, in that sense of time. All of that can have such significant variation between cultures. That's the type of thinking that we were going after in this paper, and it can have profound implications when you go and think about more complex things beyond uh, space, time, but really look at um, the other aspects of the title, blame, influence, um, tactical maneuvers. So that's where we wanted to think about how planners can start to anticipate these incredible differences and variations across cultures in thinking, which is very, very hard to do, but 
it's certainly possible from some of the insights from these other groups of experts. So we have experts that have looked at this from a broader theoretical perspective and experts who looked at it from the research and cognitive perspective and certainly some experts that have put it all together. So in this one paper, we are trying to kind of walk through step by step how you might anticipate some of these cognitive variations and then apply them uh, and then maybe come out with some interesting results. I'd like uh, the panelists that have joined us to give a little more introduction to what they got out of the paper um, and what they were contributing here. And then I'm going to ask some of them some questions. So uh, I heard Tim chime in first, so I'm going to ask Tim to introduce himself and, and start off. Uh, thanks very much, Gwyneth. Um, so I'll just um, start off by sort of summarizing, if you like, uh, the observations that I tried to bring out in the paper, which is that over a, a military career when I was deployed on serial operations, what I um, saw was that actually that um, we, do 4 if you like, uh, were very often um, bad at understanding the context that we were entering into. And the consequence of that was that actually, whilst we were trying to do good, very often we ended up doing some bad or some damage as well um, because of our lack of understanding or lack of acknowledgement of the contextual difference um, that, that we were encountering. Um, and, and, and really what I was saying was it would be really helpful if um, you know the military, in my instance, was able to connect to a, a body of work, a body of evidence, that could help us, help guide us um, towards doing no harm in the in the early instances, in, in the early um, part of an intervention, because very often the sort of harm that we do is really really hard to put right, um, you know, downstream, and even therefore when we are having tactical success, um, if we have done damage to the contextual environment, um, that doesn't necessarily help us in achieving operational or strategic success. So that's really what I was saying. And, and you know, um, and therefore the degree to which academia and, and other sort of thought um, leaders were able to help us with that uh, would be very helpful. I mean, if I was able to make some, some uh, other remarks here, it would actually be uh, less about um, what academia and other um, thought leaders could help us with, but actually how we could help ourselves. Because it seems to me that many crisis management or crisis um, response organizations need to change some of their internal cultures in important ways. And, and so, uh, you know, for example, the military, I think, are pretty, pretty well recognized as being a task-orientated organization. Um, institution, and, and sometimes that can be to the detriment of, of factors that may be contextually critical. Um, and, you know, if I can draw an analogy that um, military tacticians will, will understand, you know, if, if you've got a mission to secure a line of departure for the main force, and you've got a river running down your, your, one of your flanks and there's a bridge across it, you would destroy the bridge because it, it helped to protect your flank. And you would do that unless there were some sort of constraints or restraints which were placed in your way to um, tell you not to do that. And so in a similar context, 
you know, if you're in a, a, uh, a non-conventional um, intervention, uh, you had a tactical or maybe an operational objective, uh, you might wish to avoid exposing a flank to the population um, that, that was a potential threat uh, to your tactical objective, and in so doing, you may take, uh, you know, actions um, amongst or or against the population that actually did damage in the long term. Um, so, understanding a, a better understanding of the contextual implications of our actions at the tactical level would be important. Um, the, the second is, I guess, that under pressure, most organizations turn inwards in the first instance toward the information and the intelligence that, that they have. Uh, and, there, and by doing so, especially if bandwidth you know, um, is, is limited under pressure, they squander the opportunity to, uh, to enrich and to broaden the feeds that they're getting, uh, which might also challenge their biases. And I think that, you know, very often this is compounded within, within a military environment because we, we tend to be schooled from a young age in our, in our individual community. And it's not until a little bit later on where we're a little bit um, older and grislier that we're exposed to a broader, maybe a joint or a combined environment where other perspectives actually are fed in. And the final uh, one, in the interest of time I'll make, is that even on those occasions when we do consider external feeds, very often it's with, with suspicion. And so, you know, the, the, the veracity, if you like, of, of academic work, I've heard very often being questioned, even when it's with very, very highly respected institutions, because, you know, it's not official, if you like, it's not intelligence, it's academic um, study, if you like. So unless we, on our side, can do better, um, in, you know, with our culture, even if um, academia was able to make this wisdom available to us, we would probably not make the most of it, and I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. Um, those are some really excellent points that I want to build on with some of the next uh, panel members. So I, I asked all of you to think about this idea of tempo and being able to integrate some of these insights in a timely manner in the, um, as we would all hope, at the beginning of planning. Um, and we know we're always going to be rushed in a crisis situation. Several of the contributors talked particularly about crises uh, such as humanitarian crises around the earthquake in Haiti uh, and even the, the current um, hurricane that affected Puerto Rico. So when time is of the essence, how, how do we take that essential moment to integrate some of these things that could make the rest of the operation much more successful uh, and not feel that crunch of, of time? I think that's something that we need to, to think about in our planning processes, and I would be interested in all the panelists' ideas um, and expertise on that. The other thing that you mentioned that everyone has talked about in their um, papers is training. Um, I know that Dr. Sadiq uh, made a recommendation about training exercises, and several of you have participated in those, I know. So how do we make the most of those types of training exercises around this particular topic to integrate these cognitive variations and not just um, 
participate with partner nations or other groups, but really extract these insights and integrate them into planning processes. I think one of the, the contributors that wasn't here made an interesting point about um, training in other areas and then trying to transplant insights into another context uh, that doesn't always work. So how do we do training where we pull out relevant insights and understand what can and can't be applied elsewhere? I think that can also be very difficult. Um, so since I just brought him up, uh, Dr. Sadiq, are you online? Yes, I am here. Okay. Why don't you um, go ahead and share a little bit about your uh, background and what you've contributed here? Um, hello, everyone. My name is uh, Abdullahim Sadiq. I'm an associate professor here at uh, uh, School of Public Administration at the uh, University of Central Florida. It's, uh, I think, about almost 80 degrees now, um, uh, so it's really sunny and beautiful here. Um, so thank you first uh, for allowing me to Good contribute to and uh, be part of the panel, panel uh, discussion. Uh, my work really uh, focused on the Haiti earthquake in 2010. Um, where I observe a lot of um, issues regarding um, our, uh, the international response to the disaster. And so I looked at uh, several areas, such as uh, lack of uh, uh, the problem surrounding uh, 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 not having effective uh, coordination of the, uh, of the aid distribution. Uh, but I focus also on sort of the mass fatality management, you know, how were the dead uh, sort of uh, treated, were there proper burial arrangements and things of that nature. And so it was from that experience that sort of um, motivated me to uh, take a role in this particular um, white paper that, that was uh, published recently. And there I was sort of looking at uh, the implication of, um, uh, of the, the need for, uh, for us to have a better understanding of uh, cultural and cognitive diversity when responding to disasters that affect uh, other nations. So I will kind of circle back and come to the question um, uh, Dr. Sutherland asked earlier in terms of how do we uh, plan for this in crucial time when there's when time is really of the essence. Well, the uh, the answer really lies in the fact that there ought to be pre-planning, you know, before. Uh, an event if before we have to come to that situation where we have to rush out of the door and try to provide you know a response or relief to areas that have been uh, countries that have been stricken by a particular disaster so we know we already for instance the US already does several training on the counterterrorism side emergency planning with other countries but I think this is it's it's, it's important to know that that's sort of a broader level and a different type of training. While we can use the same sort of platform to establish specific topics on you know, cultural and cognitive diversity and how they might impact the response itself. So I think that, to me, is a missing piece. So for instance, during training exercises um, for humanitarian responders who are going to be going abroad uh, to provide uh, response uh, help or relief, uh, material to people, we can bring in cultural experts, uh, cognitive experts that can help also train them to, to sort of be aware of those challenges that they're probably going to face. So I think if we can have that before a disaster and train, on, train uh, our responders on that, 
let them know what to look for. I think that will help them a lot to be to have sort of an open mind when they get onto the field and to have at least a general sense of what they're going to be expecting. Uh, but the you know lim- limitation of that is that you know we the, in the U.S. we respond to several disasters in you know in multi multitudes of uh, of countries and the culture are different in those in those countries. So that that's going to be a challenge. But I think I think in the interim, it's important to start that process of training. You know we can focus on you know. Um, Countries, kind of as, as groups, depending on the similarities that we can we can establish within those cultures. For instance, you know, in West Africa, the Afri- West African culture, even though there are some nuances, you know, but there are some sort of generalities that we can start with in the interim. And you know, as as time goes by, then we can focus on specific uh, specific uh, uh, nuances within those uh, cultures. So, as uh, in summary, uh, really. It's trying to plan ahead you know when the disaster shows up it's already too late to do anything so it's recognizing the fact that we need to be ready uh, uh, to be able to respond uh, with the with the equipment of you know cultural and cognitive di- diversity uh, training uh, is very essential for the success of our humanitarian action when disasters happen in other countries thank you uh, and then we have um, we have Matthew Martin on the line as well, who's, who's coming from a an operator's perspective, who brings a lot of these things together. Is also in the process of getting his PhD. So um, I'd be interested uh, in in learning about your contribution to this paper. But also, uh, Tim brought up the idea that there is. Some of these academic insights are treated with suspicion, and that is one of the barriers to them being integrated in the planning process. And I don't know whether Dr. Speak um, and Matt, whether you whether you both have ever considered this, whether you agree, uh, what your opinions on that would be. But Matt, go ahead and tell us what you've um, what you've contributed here, and how you've brought some of these things together with your extensive experience. Hey, thanks, Dr. Southern. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for being on the call today. Uh, so my paper starts off with a, a little anecdote from World War II about Japanese soldiers, how the United States Psi-War specialists distributed a leaflet to them, um, and on the leaflet had the words, I surrender. And, and the Psi-War specialists didn't know, but the Japanese war culture did not, the Japanese culture did not uh, allow the Japanese soldiers to even think about the word surrender. It was, it was specifically forbidden for them to do so, and the leaflet failed. And so they were indoctrinated to a certain point where they were inoculated, and the inoculation being taken from the biological immunity, actually we get you know, our kids shots that are inoculated against chickenpox or whatever. And uh, so I think that we find that in some cultures, uh, especially with the... the you know, the increase in electronic messaging with the increase in social media, that you're finding a lot of other cultures who are um, who are inoculated against specific messages, and it could be just the inoculation is related to the credibility of the messenger or who or their perceived credibility of the messenger. And so, you know, when you talk about um, when you talk about academics and talk about practitioners on the ground, you know, in PSYOP we have a joke that we have... Uh, our group is divided, in, our regiment is divided into two groups, and that's the meat eaters and the plant eaters, and the meat eaters are the guys that go out and 
You know, they, they work best in the field and they're not so good with the analysis portion and the plan leaders are the reverse. And there's always been that kind of uh, high school jocks versus nerds kind of mentality and it's difficult to really understand each other. And I, I don't think it's a matter of suspicion or feeling that there's no relevance. I think it's just a matter of not speaking the same language. Um, and so I think it's, it's really just understanding our own target audience, you know, when, when the academics uh, try to talk to the, I guess, the meat eaters, and the meat eaters try to talk to the academics. It's, it's a matter of really trying to figure out how how we can make those the findings found in academia more applicable to the the tactical level on the ground. How can it, how can those findings be more relevant to me, a practitioner? And so, I, our job as as those on the ground, our job as the practitioners is not getting easier, it's getting much, much harder. And like I said, especially with the advent of the internet, especially with, uh, you know, the, the unintended, or well, it's intentional on the part of the, uh, of the media source, but, uh, you know, people are becoming more inoculated against influence as time goes on, especially as younger generations come up, they're more suspicious of attempts to influence them. And so you're gonna find that, uh, you're gonna find that a lot more people a lot more target audiences are going to be more suspicious of inoculation, I'm sorry, influence attempts, more suspicious or just outright rejecting influence attempts by, in, attempts by most other sources. So when you talk about what's needed for planning, uh, it's difficult because in the past it was pretty easy to understand. There were only a few sources, you know, maybe it was newspaper, radio, TV, and that was it. But now, uh, the practitioner needs to understand the entirety of the psychological environment of the target audience, and that's almost impossible to do. We need to understand uh, how, you know, even down to, and this may seem ridiculous, even down to what what means do they, what means influence them, those kinds of things. And that's just kind of an example, but, you know, planning for influencing a target audience requires that we understand, you know, where they get their thought processes from. It's more than just uh, more than just whatever's in the local newspaper or on the radio, uh, it's, it's who, who influences them. And so it's, it's a matter of identifying their conditions, and in science doctrine, you know, conditions is what is their current behavior. It's identifying their conditions and how those conditions came to be. So a matter of planning is, as, as Dr. I think it was Dr. Sadiq said, it's a, it's a matter of, of constantly being prepared, being pre-prepared, and a matter of training before the event happens. So that's, that's, that's my take on it, Dr. Sutherland. Thank you for letting me speak. Okay, um, thank you. So that was, uh, as you can see, each one of our speakers is getting more and more detailed uh, into their, their experience and their connection to this topic. Um, I was not planning on speaking a lot here. I was going to moderate, but I think one of our speakers was unable to attend um, very on very short notice. And so our two cognitive scientists um, who are going to contribute kind of the more the, the more uh, academic side of this, I wanted to give them a little bit of a voice here. They um, one of them participated in a lot of research that was IARPA funded. and um, so in that way, it should have some connection to uh, the national security types of questions that are being raised here. And so I think it's very interesting, particularly in the FMA setting, to think if there is a real disconnect between how 
planners and operators can uh, get this type of academic information and they are not finding it in the right package or it's not quite useful or trusted. I was similarly finding from the academics, the pure academics that I was speaking to, that they didn't know what was needed. They were pursuing interesting questions, um, but they were very often laboratory bound and they did not understand the planning and operating environment um, where their research might be applied. There was an extreme divide between these two communities uh, in terms of understanding their needs and how they're to, how they might connect to one another. And I think that might be something that needs to be addressed and I think the FMA is a really interesting place to do that. They, it's often done very well, but I was very surprised that within this one paper um, there were distinct topics that had direct application to one another that were still very difficult to communicate within this small group of people. Um, so for example, the, uh, the researcher, Dr. Anatoly Kokurin, looks at cross-cultural variability in, um, in problem solving and creativity. So this can have applications when you're looking at a, a small non-state actor who is suddenly shifting tactics quite uh, unpredictably and you're trying to anticipate and perhaps plan counter tactics and strategies around this, um, but they seem to be going way outside of the box because their planning and their um, sort of creative moves are so, so different than anything that you're going to come up with. Um, and the reasons for this is that there are just truly different thought processes on the rules. Not rules of what's good and bad, but just the rules, as though gravity is different. There are just different thought processes. So how do we anticipate that? And can, is there research? Are there people who are looking at these things that could help us anticipate this and bring this into our planning process earlier? And the hypothesis of this whole white paper is that yes, that exists, and yes, it is possible to bring it in earlier, but only, I suppose, if the academics and the people who are using it, the operators and planners, are able to themselves communicate. So what I've asked the, the uh, contributors here on the panel to continue to think about is what would that look like? What are some evaluation types of metrics that would be uh, understandable by both communities? Um, Dr. Sadiq, for instance, is in a, is in a um, sort of what I would consider a middle ground who works with uh, communities in the field in this way, in a very practical way, and uh, his paper goes through some very practical solutions. So I would be interested in some of his feedback uh, to start with, and then I'll return uh, to Tim and to Matt. Well, um, I think you, you brought up a very important point, uh, which is that Sometimes in academia, you know, we look, we examine, you know, topics that are sort of, you know, important to, that we see as being important sort of to the field in terms of advancing, uh, you know, science really. And, uh, and sometimes they are not really practical in, in a sense. Um, and on the other side, you know, we have people in the field who need certain things that we as academics are not aware of. Um, one one way one solution that is already uh, that that is already out there is is been is having funding mechanisms. So, for instance, the National Science Foundation 
can kind of provide, you know, funding for researchers to explore um, uh, sort of issues that are out there that need to be addressed. And so as a researcher, you might be able to use those funds to sort of, you know, go a little bit out of your comfort zone and examine critical questions that are sort of practical in nature. So, uh, so for SMA, for instance, if there are agencies that are out there that are looking for certain solution, kind of practical solution from the academic community, I think if we can be, if you are able to bring those two parties together to come, come to the table, uh, look at the expertise from the academic side and look at the problem that needs to be addressed from the uh, practitioner side, I think that may be a good way to sort of, you know, provide concrete examples. So the researcher can now take, you know, the, all the theoretical training from his, his or her own lab and go into the field and try to collect, you know, relevant, uh, accurate data that can now be analyzed and pro to, to provide perhaps more uh, uh, comprehensive understanding and, uh, uh, and good recommendation for a particular problem. Okay, thank you. Tim, um, do you have a further comment on types of evaluation metrics that a planner, a planner might find useful to integrate um, academic work? Yeah, well, um, first of all, just to go back to my point about um, some academic uh, products being uh, treated with suspicion, um, I've, I've actually seen that um, very often it related to um, work that's emanated out of um, foreign institutions, uh, but as I say, even when they were well, re well respected, they were sort of um, considered with a, a degree of suspicion. Um, as to what we could do better. Um, I'm sort of slightly hopeful that technology might help us um, because if we can, you know, I, I take your point exactly, absolutely, that academia very often doesn't know what we what we need. Frankly, um, quite a lot of the time I'm not sure that we know ourselves what we need, um, but to the extent that we do, uh, we need to communicate that better. But um, if technology and, you know, the, the, the advent of increasingly sophisticated um, search capabilities um, aided by artificial intelligence um, can be applied to, 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 to finding the information that is out there and collating it in a way that is then more accessible to us when we're looking for this wisdom um, under pressure, then, then that, would, that would be great. Um, but I think going back to my earlier comments about how we need to look to ourselves as to how we do this better is I think the SMA is a wonderful example, but actually a very rare example of, of how, um, let us say, security, defense communities, um, you know, are, are looking to exploit open source information and, and the, the power of, of intellectual thought that is out there. But, but as I say, it's a rare example rather than the normal. Um, so, so what we need to do again um, generally as military community is, um, you know, apply uh, um, the source of resources towards that, maybe not on the same scale, but, but the source of resources uh, to that, as we do, for example, to our intelligence community, so that we are actually able to exploit what is out there in the open source in a way that, we, frankly, we, we presently just don't. And I'll leave it at that. Um, Matt, do you have something to add? 
No, I, 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 I <laughs> just on a personal note, I sometimes get intimidated because I'm the, I'm the least educated guy in the group here. Uh, no, I, I think that that's, that's outstanding, and, and I, I don't really have anything to say to that. I mean, I think it's absolutely right is that sometimes that we don't know how to voice um, what we need in, in the way that I think that, um, in the way that we can, uh, we can make it understood how we need it. And I think there's just a, I think there's probably just a breakdown in communication somewhere. I think that ultimately the problem might be solved by, um, you know, more education among the ranks of uh, guys down on my level to maybe think more like the guys at the upper level on the academic side. I think that that's possibly what might be a uh, potential problem solver there. Okay. Uh, well, so I think I'm going to ask maybe one or so more questions, and then I'm going to um, open it up for uh, questions both to the panel to ask each other questions if you have any, uh, and then for the, the other members of the audience. Um, so my last question is we, when we were looking at cultural and cognitive variation, these both sound like very technical terms uh, and kind of are or very academic terms, what we were trying to do is break the idea of cognitive and cultural down into small or discrete and observable things that planners are impacted by. So for instance, when I used to work in the field, a lot of the things that would cause plans to go awry was something very observable and something that I can address is a different sense of time. And it turns out that is something that is discrete that cognitive scientists do specific research around. Similarly, um, so that is a cultural cognitive variation. It's a specific thing, how you understand time. Similarly, uh, your sense of space, so how you uh, interpret and perceive yourself within space, um, and this would involve Certainly, I think you can understand how this would be important in planning, how you describe where you're going to go, who is there, uh, or recall certain events about who was there and what happened within a certain space. Um, and also, this both will these can combine to agency, which can also be called um, responsibility or culpability. So um, how things tie together in terms of cause and effect often have to do with your sense of time, who is there, and who has the agency to actually affect things. These are all specific, discrete things that have to do with how we conceptualize information in our minds, and they are culturally variable. And there is specific research from cognitive scientists that looks at these things. So my question now you uh, on the panel is, can you think of, in your own experience or work, uh, a time when there was one of these discrete cognitive variations that affected your work, that either negatively affected and you wish you'd known ahead of time, or that you did know ahead of time and you sort of built in and addressed, for instance, a cultural variation in how people understand time, or how they understand um, individual versus collective responsibility. These are some examples. Um, so I'm just going to go through and put Tim on the spot and go, go through in the same order. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, so look, look for 
example, uh, in, uh, to Afghanistan, and, and I mentioned this in my, my contribution to the paper, and it's not so much there that we didn't understand that um, the locals there had a different concept of time. Um, it was, and it, it, we knew, we knew, it was clear. Um, but I would say there was actually comparatively little we could do about it because, you know, we were constrained, if you like, by the expectations of democratic society, um, which meant that it, 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 we were limited in many respects as to how, how far we could, um, you know, factor that difference into our planning because it was a, a limit of tolerance as to how uh, patient, if you like, our societies and our political leaders would, would be um, without seeing, you know, you know uh, deliverable effects um, in, in the environment that they're operating on. In. So, so, you know, that's maybe not the example we were looking for because it, it wasn't something that caught us by surprise, but it was nonetheless a, a critical factor um, which distorted, I guess, the way in which we addressed the, the task and, and the distorted, I guess, um, the, the way that things played out in, in, in reality. And I'll leave it at that. Well, before we go on to, to Dr. Sadiq, to Akeem, um, do you think that if there had been different evaluation metrics for um, your progress, for instance, that matched this cultural sense of time, that would have changed things? I mean, was is there some sort of evaluation uh, marker that you could change or some aspect of the, the planning assessment that you could change uh, as we look to try and make this type of planning more, more efficient across any type of measure? Uh, to, to restate if that wasn't clear, what, what I heard you describe is that our sense of time didn't match theirs, and so we were um, the way we were trying to measure it was just we were, became impatient. So, is there a way to change and shift to make some of our measures uh, fit that context? Yeah, I mean that, that's a really tough one because um, it, it's how yeah, I mean how we measure progress is how we then present it to our own constituencies. Um, and, and so, I mean, it, it is, that's a really tough one, um, and, and certainly one that we should all reflect upon. Um, it, it, it's also tough in the context of, you know, 24-hour news cycles where um, where the media is everywhere and watching, and, and, and they, if you like, fuel the expectation of our constituency to see tangible um, progress, however that's defined. And, and you know, it, it's a classic case that the, the good news stories that result from unseen and unsung activities in the background really don't capture the headlines. It, it's the flashbang and the drama that uh, attracts the headlines, and, and that then influences people's uh, perceptions of how things are going. So, um, you know, it, it's really hard to practice to, to be able to manage things in, in the way you suggest. Um, I, I'm not sure I can offer any more wisdom than that, I'm afraid. No, I, I thank you. I think that is useful to to articulate that that, that is one of the challenges. Um, okay. Uh, Akeem, did you have 
something to, to add to, to yes. an example? Yes, I, you know, um, I have two examples. One is just, you know, anecdotally growing up. You know, I grew up in, uh, in Nigeria, and um, what I realized is that, at least after coming to the U.S., is that there is a different concept of time. Um, and, and so, in fact, so much so that in, in parts of Africa, we have what's called the African time. Um, so, for instance, if you have a, I went to a, a ceremony here one time in the U.S. that was organized by an African group. I was invited. Uh, the ceremony was supposed to start, I think it was like a wedding ceremony, and it was supposed to start, I think, 6 p.m. And I got there, of course, like, you know, going by the, uh, uh, the uh, American time. I'm always, I like to be on time all the time. So when I got there, I think I arrived there about 30 minutes early, and uh, uh, needless to say, the uh, event did not start <laughs> until about nine o'clock, <laughs> three hours before. I mean, when uh, later than when it was scheduled to uh, to occur, and that's something that is, you know sort of fascinates me is that you know people have a different conceptual uh, conceptualization of what time really means. And so when I went to Haiti, I saw something similar. And, and, and that was that, you know, whenever we schedule interviews with the local, local uh, Asian, like uh, from the government or nonprofit or, what, or whatever the case may be, they never really showed up on time. You know, but it's something that I, growing up in Nigeria, I'm already sort of familiar with. So I already took that with me as a sort of an expectation that, okay, I'm going to a different country, and it's possible that the concept of time is different from that in the U.S. So I sort of built that as part of my expectation because as a researcher, you know, and uh, as a humanitarian worker or whatever the case might be, an operation manager, when you get to the field, you want to get things done quickly. As Tim said, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the media. Everybody wants things done, like, quickly. But I think if we're able to understand that the concept of time is different and that things might take longer than we expect, we can put that as we can provide buffer or sort of um, incorporate buffers into our planning such that people that are doing the humanitarian effort don't get stressed out when they don't get the information in a, in a sort of um, in a timely or the, the designated time that they want to get it. You know, letting them know that, okay, uh, there are realistic expectations regarding, you know, setting realistic expectations regarding the context that we're going into it's a developing country, you know, knowing that, you know, you may not get those, uh, the, the information, in a, you know, accurately, you may not get them, you know, you may not have complete information because of, you know, other things, technology and the likes of it. I think that can really help our humanitarian workers to, or operational managers to understand that we may not be able to deliver what we need to deliver at the time, sort of using the U.S. standard. You know, and I think that's okay because if we don't create those realistic, realistic expectations, um, I think it's going to end up, you know, you know, probably creating stress conditions on those that are, you know, performing those functions of humanitarian assistance and the like of it, because they are be, they will be under constant pressure that they have to deliver. But if we let them understand that, well, there is a little bit of buffer for you because we understand you are in a different context of which in, in a context that time is viewed differently, I think that will go a long way in helping them to be able to work effectively uh, while delivering those, uh, uh, um, uh, delivering those services.
Thank you. Uh, Matt, do you have a, an example for any type of discrete cognitive activity from your work? Uh, well, I can tell you that I'm from the South, and so, you know, in South Carolina, we, we view time a little bit differently than the rest of the world, uh, and I didn't really understand how important it was until I joined the Army. But um, in, in professional level, um, you know, when, when I, every time I've been to Afghanistan uh, and you get somebody that comes through that, you know, one of the soldiers that comes through and every time they come back and, and they say, man, all these, these guys are always late to everything, and we always have to tell them, uh, you know, it's not about whether they're late or they're early. It's, it's, part of the, it's part of the culture, and we have to manage our own expectations. It's not about, um, you know, late and they, therefore they are wrong. It's, it's about our expectations, and I, I have to kind of think about it from a, a relationship standpoint or a friendship standpoint. If, if, if I expected everybody to live up to my expectations that, that were in my own head, then I would always be angry and I would not have any friends. Um, and so I think that it's just a matter of, it, it, of not necessarily uh, making them understand my version of what time is, but really just allowing for variations in what, uh, what we expect from other people. And it, it, it's not wrong or right to be to show up at a certain time for a meeting or an appointment or something like that, but it's a matter of managing the expectations that you have of other people and allowing for the other culture to to exist as it is. You know, we we're way early to everything according to some people in Afghanistan, and as as I've been told, and that's fine too. I, mean, I think that we just have to manage our expectations and and uh, you, you know and give a little bit of leeway to cultures that are different from us. I mean, I, that's not a, a very uh, very smart way of saying it, but uh, I just kind of want to reiterate what the previous speaker speaker mentioned. Hey, thank um, you. That's, that is very helpful. Um, I know that a, a number of authors mentioned the word empathy um, in their in their papers, and certainly that was that was mentioned uh, in our executive summary. I think some of the reviewers brought that up as a very important quality, which which is more or less what we're talking about, is just observing and having some understanding of this different context. I think that the problem that we're all trying to articulate here is how do you take that, which seems very natural, and put it into a process, uh, come up with some actual evaluation and, and assessment metrics to make it a process that flows smoothly and is effective so we aren't writing more papers to say, we, we wish we had done this in this way. Um, that becomes really a challenge. So. I'm going to open it up for questions. Um, first, if there are any members of the panel that have questions themselves that they want to pose to one another, uh, I'll let you do that first. Okay. And then if there's anyone on the line who has a, a question, um, I'm going to have Nicole unmute it so that, that they can go ahead and answer or go ahead and ask questions. 